the teams you care about. Mac Jones is good. That's not the question. The question is, is he good enough to win repeatedly in this loaded AFC? The stories that matter to you. If I'm Xander Bogarts, I need three things in order to get over that insulting contract offer. This is your home for New England sports. Jason Tatum, superstar, book it. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB-AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Friday right here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Full week of full shows. It's been awesome to get more and more of you into the show on the text line and had some people reaching out to me on social media as well. Love when we have full shows. We've got another one coming up on Monday as the Red Sox will have an off day, so I am pumped to be with you for the next 90 minutes. We go up until 7 o'clock. Red Sox baseball at 7.10 when the Sox get ready to take on the Royals again in Game 2 at Kauffman Stadium. Sox lose yesterday 7-3. Pre-game show 7-10. First pitch 8-10. We're going to talk about the Red Sox. We're going to talk about Buster Olney's startling comments yesterday to us on High and Bloom. We're going to talk about the Patriots and more and more of their struggles offensively at training camp. And it's 6-10. I might have said 5-45, but it's been verified now. 6-10. We're going to catch up with Steph Smith. Steph Smith, the former UVM men's basketball star. Remember, he was an all-conference player a couple of years ago for UVM. Had his fifth year, the COVID year. He elected last season to go to St. John's. He's now playing professionally in Canada right now, which is where he's from originally. So we're going to catch up with Steph Smith. And uh, hard to believe, we're less than three months away from the first UVM basketball game. Like I'm already kind of jonesing now for Catamount hoops again. I got a couple of news and notes on UVM and we'll get into a little bit more next week too, but Steph Smith is going to stop by with us at 610. You can get in as always on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. That's 802-585-3026. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. You can also check us out Facebook live, YouTube live, and my Twitter account as well. So, Let's run with it on a Friday. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and by Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Middlesex, Derby, Enosburg, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. Red Sox lose last night 7-3 to the Royals, drop game one of a critical series. They're all critical at this point. Alex Cora made a big mistake last night. He made a big mistake in how he handled the bullpen. We don't usually say that. Alex Cora gets universally praised for how he handles a pitching staff and how he manages a game and how he handles a bullpen specifically. But last night, it's true. Last night, Alex Cora's decision-making in that bullpen helped cost the Red Sox a game, a game they had to have. Let's, let's refresh your memory as to what happened last night. The Red Sox came back last night, right? Ploiecki ties the game at 3-3 in the top of the seventh. In the bottom of the seventh, Cora goes to Darwin's and Hernandez, fresh off being just called up, and things implode. It's 3-3, bottom seven. Hernandez gives up four runs. Red Sox lose 7-3. In that situation, right, bottom of the seventh inning, it's a 3-3 tie. In that situation, Alex Cora has to, 
has to go to Garrett Whitlock. I am sorry, but you just do. I know how managers think, right? So let's let's play in our heads here what Alex Cora is thinking. It's the top of the seventh inning, and the Red Sox are threatening to score. And there's two pitchers warming up for Boston. Garrett Whitlock is one. Darwin's and Hernandez is the other. Cora's thinking, if we take the lead and we have a lead to protect, then I'm going to go to Whitlock. I guarantee you that's what he's thinking. But he's thinking to himself, if we are tied or we are behind, I'm going to go to Hernandez. So the Red Sox score the run, tie it at three, leave it there. He goes to Hernandez instead of Whitlock. I know there was not a lead to protect, but in that situation, you just have to go with Whitlock. That way of thinking where if we have the lead, we'll go to one guy, and if we're tied, we'll go to this guy, that's all well and good for April and May. It does not work in a playoff race, and that is exactly what I have been told the Red Sox are in. I have been told, the Red Sox told us at the trade deadline, Hyam Bloom told us at the trade deadline. Alex Cora has told us his team still has a chance. If the goal for the Red Sox is to make the playoffs, as we have been told, then last night's bullpen management was wrong. Garrett Whitlock in a 3-3 game has to come into that game. And he's got a pitch in the 7th. He's got a pitch in the 8th. And then you turn it over to Schreiber or Hauk in the ninth, depending on what the situation is. Garrett Whitlock had not pitched since July 31st, right? Had not been into a game in five days. It wasn't a case of, oh, he's tired. It wasn't a case of, oh, he's overworked. It wasn't a case of, oh, we don't want to push him. He is more than fully rested. He needed to pitch yesterday. Schreiber hadn't pitched since August 1st. He needed to pitch yesterday. Hauk didn't pitch the day before in Houston. He all You were set up with your big guys, with your best relievers. You were set up for them perfectly to take you home in that game. You cannot go to Darwin's and Hernandez in that situation fresh off the AAA shuttle. I understand that Hernandez is the guy who gave up the hits and gave up the three-run homer to Salvador Perez, but I'm not mad at Darwin's and Hernandez. I am mad at Alex Cora. And Will Fleming, the broadcaster on WDEV, to his credit, after the Perez home run, he was upset at Cora also. Pitch. Swinging a drive into the corner in left field. Huge trouble if fair, and it is gone over the wall of home run. A three-run blast for Salvador Perez, a Darwinson Hernandez absolute implosion, and it's 7-3 Royals. Very difficult to understand why he was on the mound in this spot. There you go. Very difficult to understand why he was on the mound in this spot. Will Fleming said it perfectly. Alex Cora last night made a mistake. He's usually good. I don't think what's happened to the Red Sox this season is all his fault. I don't give him a whole lot of blame for where this season has gone. But last night, that was a decision that Alex Cora had control over, and he made the wrong choice. We have all been told that the goal for the Red Sox is the playoffs, and we have all been led to believe that the playoffs are a possibility and a real reality 
for this team. If that is the case, if that is truly the case, then I am going to continue to be worked up about wrong personnel decisions, and you should too. You should be upset by last night also. Garrett Whitlock is ready. He is warmed up. It's a 3-3 tie, and it's a game you have to win. I told you last night, the Red Sox, if they do want to make the playoffs, they've, they've got an incredibly hard schedule. They've got to clean up on these handful of bottom feeders they have left. They need three of four against Kansas City. They might have needed a sweep against Kansas City. They've got Winkowski pitching today, who is a guy who could conceivably lose. You could not lose last night with a veteran in Pavetta on the mound and with all of your bullpen arms ready. And you did because of a poor, poor mismanagement. It's a 3-3 game. Whitlock has got to pitch. Look, if the Red Sox want to pack in the season, then just tell us, and I'll stop getting mad. If the Red Sox sold at the deadline and they were punting on the rest of the season, I'd come out today and say, you know what? No big deal that Hernandez pitched. We got to get the kids some work. Got to see him in different situations. Got to see how he is in high leverage spots. Got to see if he's a guy for the future. If you want to punt on the season, I will gladly take that attitude. But you've told us you did not punt on the season. You held on to guys because you think the reward of the playoffs is greater than the selling, you know, 50% on the dollar for J.D. Martinez and, and Nathan Evaldi. You thought going for the playoffs was more worth it than selling. So if that's truly the case, then I'm going to continue to be worked up about this. It's a series you have to win. It's a series you needed to dominate. You can't, you can't hold back your best relievers. For what? What was the reason to hold back Whitlock? To get Darwins and Hernandez some work? No, that works in April. That does not work in August in what I'm told is a playoff race. When they were losing 3-2 to two yesterday in the 6th and they put Barnes in, I was fine with it. Get Barnes some work when you're losing. When you are tied, go to your top guys, your guys who are fresh. Your guys who are fresh. Whitlock hadn't pitched since July 31st. He was up. He was ready. He was hot. Bring him in. Keep it at 3-3, score in the 8th or the ninth, and win the game, a game that you must have. And you know what? The home run by Salvador Perez, I don't know how many of you were watching. I don't think that it was a home run. The funky left field wall configuration was an embarrassment in Kauffman, in Kauffman Stadium. I don't think it was a home run by Perez. But you know what? When you make a poor managerial decision, and when your pitcher, Darwinson Hernandez, who should never be out there, walks the leadoff guy, you deserve bad things to happen. You deserve bad things to happen. Sometimes in this world, you make your own luck. And the Sox walked right into bad luck. They got exactly what they deserved. They bring in the wrong guy. They leave him in for too long. He never should have at least faced Perez. Bring in the wrong guy. Leave him in too long. Walk the leadoff guy get punished. No, I don't think it was a homer, but you got exactly what you deserve. You make your own luck, and the Red Sox made bad luck. If you if if you want to punt the season, then just tell me, and I will stop being mad. I promise you, if the Red Sox had sold at the deadline, 
I would not complain about anything the rest of the year. All I would have said was, I get it. You got to see the young guys. Got to see the young guys. Got to see what they have. We know what Whitlock can do. Let's see what Hernandez can do. If you, if the, if punting was the message, I wouldn't get mad at any of it. But I've been told this is a playoff race that you still want to be a part of. If that if that messaging is true, then last night was a very poorly managed seventh inning. Alex Cora is usually great with a pitching staff. Last night he wasn't great. Whitlock's ready. Schreiber's available. Houck's available. None of them pitched. None of them pitched, and you lose a game that you had to have. And Tampa wins yesterday, so you drop a game to them again in the standings. Seattle was idle. You fall a half game back of them. Toronto won. You fell a game back of them. So teams that you are going to have to try to catch you dropped a game on all of them, and in Seattle's case, you fell a half game back. Last night was a critical loss. It was a bad loss, and Alex Cora was partly responsible for it. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. On a small positive note here, I was encouraged by what I saw from Matt Barnes. Matt Barnes threw the sixth inning. I think got through it in less than 10 pitches. I think two of the three balls were hit hard, so it was not perfect. But he gave up no hits, no walks, less than 10 pitches. He was 95, 96 miles an hour for a guy who we'd heard, you know, had worried about his velocity. 95, 96 miles an hour. That's a win. He got three outs. He didn't walk anybody. Threw strikes. Landed his fastball and his curveball. It was good to see him. Good to see him out there having success. I'm not ready to put him into big situations yet, but it was it was good to see a guy who really struggled come out and have an encouraging outing. This team needs bullpen help. I'm not naive enough to think that Matt Barnes is going to be the guy that he was last year when he made the All Star game at the you know for the first half of his work in 2021. But hey, stranger things have happened, right? John Schreiber came out of nowhere. Maybe Matt Barnes can come out of nowhere, too, and he can help the Red Sox bullpen because it needs help. They need another guy, another power arm. Maybe Barnes, maybe, maybe, maybe he can find himself again and be that guy. Not ready to go there yet, but a three-up, three-down outing, landing fastball, curveball, 95-96, that's as encouraging a start as you could have asked for. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Reports continue out of Foxborough that the Patriots' offense is unproductive, and now it's that it's sleepy. I'm not blaming the coaching staff for this problem. I'm blaming Mac Jones. I'll tell you why. That's not. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEV radio.com. We mentioned earlier this week that the Patriots offense at training camp was scuffling, particularly in the red zone. And we kind of wrote it off and said, ah, no big deal. There's still over a month to go. Well, now there's even more troubling things about the offense coming out. Let's listen to our friend, Phil Perry of NBC sports, Boston from earlier today. 
Well, I, I don't know how strongly they're questioning it, Trini, but it does appear relatively clear that there is a lack of energy, especially relative to what we saw on day one when it was a party for the offense. They're firing up the crowd after every good play. They're doing their high-flying side bumps after every touchdown, and there were a bunch that day on day one. Since then, those types of celebrations have been essentially non-existent, maybe one or two in the last seven days. And so this is something, whether it's energy or buy-in or whatever you want to term it, Bill Belichick is very cognizant of how his players are feeling and how vigorously they're attacking their jobs. I think that can be lumped into the category of buy-in. I don't want to focus on the idea of buying into the offense. I don't want to focus on that. That's not the part that's most troubling to me, actually. The part that stands out to me is when Phil Perry says there's basically no energy. They aren't flying around. They aren't celebrating. That, to me, is a direct reflection of Mac Jones. I'm not blaming the coaching triad. I'm not blaming the skill position players. I'm not blaming the fans. I am blaming Mac Jones. And that's it. We have talked about Mac Jones' development as a leader. We've talked about his personality. We've talked about him coming out of his shell more this year. We've talked about him having a better personality than we all gave him credit for. We've seen him looser at the Pro Bowl. We saw him looser this offseason. The energy, if it's lacking, it needs to be picked up by him. In this case, as the leader of this team, Mac Jones needs to step up. If he is the leader that I believe he is, and that we have been told that he is, then he needs to step up. It's his job to sense that the offense is lifeless. It's his job to now bring some juice. I understand that every quarterback is different. With Tom Brady, it was everything was precise. Everything was calculated. It was very, very workmanlike. There was a lot of pressure there. That's how Tom Brady does it. With Cam Newton, it was fun. It was loose. It was always a party. Mac Jones doesn't have to be either one of those quarterbacks. He's got to find a perfect middle ground where he can be himself. Have fun while maintaining discipline and focus. We talked about it last week. I think Mac Jones has a bit of both of those quarterbacks in him. He's played for Nick Saban and Bill Belichick. He knows how to be buttoned up in the way that Brady was. But we have seen enough from Mac Jones now a year and a half in that he's got a little bit of that Cam Newton energy in him as well. Bring both of them to the table. And whichever one the situation calls for, then let it fly. If the offense is lifeless, if the offense is listless, Mac Jones has to sense that and he's got to change that. He's got that in him. If he didn't have it in him, I'd ask for somebody else to do it, right? Jay Cutler is not a rah-rah guy who's going to talk trash and fly around. That's not his personality. I wouldn't ask Jay Cutler to bring the juice. Mac Jones, I believe, has that in him. We have seen enough of it. We have heard enough of it. He's got that in him, and therefore, it's his responsibility to bring it out of the rest of his guys. Yes, it's hot. Yes, guys are tired. Yes, guys are away from, you know, away from their families more. Yes, it's the third week of camp. Yes, guys are ready to hit someone other than themselves. I get 
all of that. But in this case, the Patriots quarterback needs to sense that things are slipping and he's got to find a way to get his guys off the mat. So I'm putting this less on guys not buying in or uh, the playbook being this, that, or the other. To me, this is more on Mac. I believe, as we've said many times, he's got it from the head up. He is a very good leader, and guys respond to him. They've got He's got to provide the juice, and they will respond to that. I'm curious as to why he is not. I'm curious as to why he is not. Be the guy that we've been led to believe you are. Be the guy that we've seen you be. And the guys will follow you. If Mac has low energy, the offense is going to have low energy. If Mac is boring and stoic, the offense is going to be boring and stoic. Devontae Parker has a personality. Nelson Aguilar has a person. Kendrick Bourne has a huge personality. These guys will let it fly if Mac pushes them on it first. Peters says, unless someone says Belichick has put the kibosh on celebrations, like act like you've been there. I, I don't think so. The one thing I will give Bill Belichick a lot of credit for, especially in the last couple of years, is he's been pretty good at letting guys be themselves. That was our big worry with Cam, right? How are Bill and Cam going to coexist? Cam's all flash and Bill is all, you know, is is all down to business. Cam was Cam. Now, fine, the season didn't go the way you'd want it to. Patriots went 7-9, and nine, but Cam Newton was allowed to be himself. He was the same big personality in Foxborough that he was in Carolina. Bill Belichick did not stunt Cam Newton. He's not going to stunt Mac Jones. He, Cam and Mac are different, of course. But Mac's got some of that in him, and he needs to bring it out. We, we've talked about let Mac have more fun. And Mac has had more fun at times. He just doesn't appear to be bringing it out now. I think Mac Jones is so frustrated by what he is seeing on the field and what he's a part of that he's having trouble having fun. And he's got to find a way to get through that because these guys are going to take the cues from him. I don't remember what day this was, guys. We'll see if we can find it real quick. But uh, Matthew Slater was talking recently about Mac Jones. Here it is from July 27th. I think it was at the very end of the clip. Um, he continues to grow in that role. And ultimately, look, this is this is going to be his team. This is his team. Matthew Slater says this is his team. He's got to take ownership of it, and he's got to flip this. Not every day at practice needs to be the offense killing the defense and, and you know, Mac going 20 for 20. It doesn't all have to be perfect from an execution standpoint. But the one thing it needs is attitude, effort, and energy. And Matthew Slater says this is his team. He can provide that. It's all part of it. Look, last year, Mac Jones had a huge support system, right? He had Cam at the beginning of the year. He didn't have to do this in training camp. He didn't have to take the team through the dog days of August. So Cam, Cam is not there anymore to take it off his plate. Then in this season, he had Josh McDaniels there, an experienced play caller. He could kind of run point, and Mac could kind of just sit back in and, and, and focus on football. 
Now Josh McDaniels isn't there. He's not there to take it off his plate. This is Mac Jones's show now. And if the energy level is low, Mac's the guy who's got to identify it, and he's the guy that's got to change it. Cam did it last year. McDaniels could do it last year. These guys now, they're looking at him. They're taking their cues from him. Max frustrated, they're going to be frustrated. Max quiet, they're going to be quiet. We need to see this Patriots team flying around, having some fun again. This team's not going to get a whole lot of game action here to get right, you know, on the field, but also emotionally. This isn't going to come from a game. They're not going to play a lot in the preseason. I don't know that Max is going to play at all in the preseason. So they're not going to fix this on the game field. Mac's going to have to show it in practice. Mac Jones can change this. He has the power to do that. He's just got to be willing. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Texter says, you may be right about all this, Brady. You usually are. Well, thank you. You're giving me far too much credit. I'm sure I'm wrong about things, but uh, I appreciate that. What we will do, we will step aside. We will get a national news update from CBS News. And then we're going to come back. We're going to talk with Steph Smith. Steph Smith is a guy who doesn't get the recognition that he should. He had a great career with UVM. Four years, played a bunch, all-conference player, NCAA tournament, starter. Steph Smith was a very good catamount. He doesn't get the recognition for that. Steph Smith is going to join us next. Talk about what he's been up to since leaving UVM. A year at St. John's, now playing professionally in Canada. Another texter says, you're usually wrong. Ha, 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 ha. I'm wrong about some things. I'm right about some things. That's what we do in this business. We take big swings, and sometimes we're right, and sometimes we're not. I'll have this texter know I was dead right about Jackie Bradley Jr. So, there you go. There, there, there's one on the scorecard that I can point to right away that I've gotten right. Steph Smith, what was his time like at UVM and what was it like at St. John's? Why did he leave Catamount Country for New York City? We'll talk with him next on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Now it's back to the Brady Parker Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on this Friday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Steph Smith will join us here in about five minutes. We get a text in on the text line, 802-585-3026, saying not to take shots at Steph Smith, but if he stayed for that fifth year, the COVID year, UVM would beat Arkansas in the NCAA tournament. However, he got to play against better competition at St. John's, and no one can ever downplay or disrespect that. If Ste- you know what? It's very interesting. If Steph Smith is here, does UVM beat Arkansas? I don't want to straddle the fence here, but I think that's a very difficult thing to say. right? I think it is a difficult thing to say. I would need to see how the entirety of the season played out. Because UVM had a great dynamic here this past season where it was Ryan Davis and Ben Shungu who were a clear one-two, and everybody else knew their role. Right, Everybody else played their role well. Finn Sullivan played it well. Justin Mazzula played it well. Aaron Deloney played it well. Robin Duncan played it well. Nick Fiorillo played it well. So everybody, Isaiah Powell, everybody at UVM this year played their role. 
If Steph Smith is there, you add another very good player. And on paper, you feel like you'd have a better chance to beat Arkansas. But I don't know how the dynamics would have played out. Would Steph Smith have played second fiddle to Benny? I don't know about that. When, I, when I'm Steph and I've been an all-conference player and I'm a year older, am I playing second fiddle to Benny? I would say probably not. Then how does that impact Benny? Who, if Steph is there to score more, now Benny doesn't score as much. It just would have been interesting. On paper, of course, UVM is better with Steph Smith. No doubt. But how roles would be defined and how the dynamics would come out, that, that I don't know about. It's the fun of the conversation, though. It's the kind of great bar conversation that sports radio has, uh, has, has been built on. Uh, before we get to step, I just want to say this. And this is going to be a first-world problem, but it's a problem that I have noticed around this state. I am a little frustrated with the amount of things in this state that close at 7 o'clock or before. Because I feel like with my work schedule, I feel like I can't go anywhere and do anything fun that the state has to offer. Again, first world problems, but is it just me or does it, are there an insane amount of things that close before seven o'clock? Like there's a new ish restaurant that just opened up in Essex. Like they were closed for a while. Now they're reopening unbelievable menu here for their first week back. Sloppy Joe's, and Philly cheesesteaks, two of my favorite things. Nothing that's good for you, but two things I absolutely love. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to get that for dinner. And what do I see? Open till 7. For those of us that work until 7, it's a little disappointing to see everything close at 7 or before. Like, just because we work later, don't I don't feel like we should be discriminated against. Now, I wouldn't have gotten home until almost 8 because of the trip I have and the post-work. So, it's like I needed to be open at least another hour. But, so, this place closes at 7. Almost every other restaurant in Essex closes at 7, it feels like. Mom and pop places close early. I get that. Farmer's Market in Waterbury. I walked by the sign yesterday. That closes at 7. Food truck festivals. Jess is constantly like, hey, there's a food truck festival. Oh, great. What time is it? Oh, closes at 7. Oh, great. Can't go. I feel like an insane amount of things close early here. I feel like an insane amount of things close early. Tech says Mountaineers playoff game tonight. You should come through. And now it's just, that's the reverse. That one starts too early. Mountaineers game starts at 630. That's great. It's the NECBL finals. It's game one today against Martha's Vineyard. They play at 630. Well, this show's on till 7. By the time we put up the podcast, newer than we got to do at 720. By the time we drive there, it's 745. So now what? You want me to drive all that way to see the final four innings? No, thank you. I would love to go to a Mountaineers game. That one happens to start too early. Tech says Vermont does have a notorious reputation for non-corporate places closing early money talks. I'll say this, too. I'm not going to name the establishment. But this one was one of the more absurd things I've ever heard. So get, So get this one. It was last Friday night, and we had a we had a short show last Friday. Like I was off the air at six ten, but by the time I finished up everything and got home to Essex, it was seven fifteen. And I go to Jess, hey, let's go out and get, let's go out and get a drink. And we thought we knocked around a few places, and we figured out a place to go. And I'm like, we want to go and sit outside, right? She's like, yeah, yeah, we want to sit outside. So we get there. 
and there's a patio at this place. And the hostess goes, she starts pulling us inside. And I go, we, we really want to sit outside. And she goes, okay, it might be closed. I'm like, it's 7. At this point, it's 745 on a Friday night. And it's 74 degrees. It's beautiful out. She's like, we're all, yeah, let me, let me, sec, let me check if we can sit outside. Okay. So then there's kind of two parts to the patio. And there's a there's a patio part that's truly outside. There's a patio part that is covered and has windows to it. So like you're sitting in the you know, you're not experiencing the elements. So she takes us to this spot, which is in the, it's kind of like a greenhouse. Like picture like a greenhouse. Like you're sitting outside, but they've got kind of an awning here that has glass windows over it, and the glass windows are closed. It's like a zillion degrees inside this thing. It's 74 outside and a zillion degrees inside this thing. She puts us there. And I'm like, we really want to sit outside, outside, you know, like like eight feet to the left of here. Can we sit there? She's like, no, because the, the server won't be able to see you as easily. I, I, I'm like, this is 8 o'clock on a Friday night. Number one, are we the only ones that want to sit outside? How is that possible? Number two, how do you not you're, – you're, we left. Like, you turned down business because of this thing. So, back to Peter's point, he's like, they have a, 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 rep, a, you know, a reputation for closing early. This place was actually open but refused to let us sit outside where we wanted to. And we were going to be the only ones there. Like all we wanted was a drink and an appetizer. I don't. If the waitress or waiter can't see us, like come to us one time. We'll take a water. We'll take a beer. We'll take some chicken wings or you know whatever, and we'll leave. Bring us the check at the same time you bring us the food, so you only come over once. I don't even care. But we actually had to leave because they wouldn't see this where we want closes close too early. Some parts of this state and this place wouldn't see this outside. So there you go. I digress. Eight oh two. 585-3026, Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury, text line. We got Steph Smith? Okay, we do. Good. I want to go on to the phone line. Steph Smith is joining us now, the former UVM men's basketball star, four years in Catamount country, spent his fifth year, the COVID year, at St. John's, playing now professionally in Canada, where he is from, an all-conference player for UVM, went to the NCAA tournament. Steph Smith, appreciate We have not spoken in a while, so good to have you on. Thanks for being with us. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great, Brady. How are you doing? I'm doing well as well. It's been a while since we have spoken, so it's a good time to uh, to reconnect here. Let's talk mm-hmm. first about your decision to play pro in Canada. Um, you signed pretty much right after the season. You're playing for the Guelph Nighthawks. Your season is going right now. Why mm-hmm. Canada versus Europe versus waiting for a summer league opportunity? Why Canada? Yeah, so, you know, I think for me, um, the Canadian, uh, the TEBL, Canadian League Basketball League, is a very unique league because it's during the summer. And so it goes from season started May, I think, 22nd, and it ends right about August 14th. So um, this league kind of allows me to, if I do, say, get a uh, look overseas or a look in the G League or something like that, I can still do that. Uh, So right now it's just me. You know, getting better, playing with pros, playing with guys that have been in the G League. You know, a couple of guys on my team have been, you know, 10-day guys, two-way players, whatever you got. And so this league kind of allows me just to, you know, stay in good shape, um, getting pro reps and, you know, getting used to the, the, the pro lifestyle uh, so that it can kind of, you know, prepare me for whatever that, that um, you know, 
season is, if it's overseas, G League, whatever it is. What has been the thing you have learned the most about pro hoops from an on-court perspective? Yeah, I think the two things, the terminology is a lot different. Uh, you know, my head coach is actually an assistant coach at uh, Fort Wayne G League uh, team, and he's also done stuff with the Raptors 905, uh, which is the Toronto Raptors G League team. And so from a pro level, the terminology is, is very important. Knowing your, your terminology, knowing your personnel, um, it's very specific. And, you know, he's a very analytical coach, so he's taught me a lot Um you know, which it actually even transitioned over when I played on the U23 team uh, a few weeks ago with Team Canada um, because the coach there was also an NBA coach. So, you know, terminology is definitely the biggest thing. And then physicality, you know, each level you go up from high school to college, college to pro, the physicality is just um, it increases. And so you got to be ready to play through contact. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of just like a it's, it's a it's a tough league. Have you had to change your game at all as you've gone to the pros? I mean, I don't know a lot about the Canadian mm-hmm. Basketball League style. Is it mm-hmm. more 3 and D? Is it pace and space? So what exactly – how are you playing personally in terms of your style of play? Yeah, I think how how my team likes to play is, you know, we like to get up and down transition. Um, very similar to kind of how I played at St. John's um, as far as the pace-wise. Um, and, yeah, I think you kind of figure that out pretty quickly that, you know, you do have sets put in, um, put in place, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, you're there to play basketball, it's read and react, making the simple reads, and a lot of those times the plays don't work because the teams do a great job scouting um, and kind of understanding the the stuff that you guys run. So basically it's just kind of get up and down, you know, being able to make reads at a, at a quicker, quicker rate, you know, quicker decisions in college, you know, maybe you could take one second. Now it's, you know, half a second to, to make a decision. And um, I think that's kind of a, the, the big change really uh, and that's kind of how we play and um, yes I'm, I'm getting used to it and getting you know used to that kind of system now we're talking with Steph Smith former UVM basketball player now a professional in Canada he's here with us on the Brady Farkas show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com are you able to just play basketball or are you grinding through a side job you know finance you know to make it all work financially yeah yeah so right now you know this is temporary and you know Right now, I don't. I don't need a side job, um, mm-hmm. you know, because obviously the our living expenses are covered and a lot of other stuff is covered. So uh, we're pretty good on that front. But for me personally, um, you know, I'm not just a basketball player. I love to, uh, you know, dip my toes in, into different things. So you know, I actually have my own business, the Seth Smith brand. Uh, you know, just trying to be a an entrepreneur in that that sense. And then um, you know, hopefully, I can you know start getting into other stuff like real estate and all that. But you know, right now, you know, I'm, I'm getting adjusted to, to playing pro basketball. And obviously, if I do end up overseas or whatnot, it might be a little bit harder. But for now, you know, I'm just trying to, um, you know, build my brand, play basketball, do it at, a high, at the highest level possible. You played four years at UVM. You took the COVID year and went to St. John's. I, I supported that decision. I thought you mm-hmm. put in all your time at UVM. You, you fulfilled your obligations and were a great cat amount. Was it a hard decision? to leave for that fifth year or did you mm-hmm. feel like you had kind of done everything in Vermont? Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, I don't think it was too tough of a decision. I think the one thing that did well on me was the fact that we didn't go out um, winning that last yeah. year. We lost to Hartford in the semifinals. Um, so that really weighed on me, but you know, I think for me and, and my goals, um, you know, professionally, I just felt like, you know, I wanted to kind of, see, you know, what a, a bigger conference, you know, a higher competition, you know, would be like and kind of, 
you know, get that sense of, you know, because at the pro level, you know, that's just how it is sometimes. And, you know, I didn't play as much as I, I wanted to, but I had good games. I had bad games. I learned a lot. And I think for me, it was kind of just seeing how, you know, people do it at a higher level, you know, understanding that, you know, it's not always going to be, you know, you, you're going to be able to play through your mistakes all the time. You know, you got to have to learn. And at the pro level, that's the biggest thing. It's like, you know, if you make one, two mistakes, that's that's a contract right there. You know what I mean? You got to be able to, to flip the switch and, you know, be able to play through things like that. So I think for me, it was a good move. Um, you know, I was real happy to see the guys at Vermont go back to the tournament. Um, you know, I think they they got robbed by the officials in, the, in that game, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say anything <laughs> too much. <laughs> but I think it was a I think it was a, the right decision for me, and and I still stand by it. When you arrived on campus at St. John's, you talking they smacked anybody? Considering you guys had beaten them a couple of years ago. Of course, of course, all the, the all the coaches on the coaching staff are just like, yeah, man, I don't I don't want to talk about that game because I think that's the only game Mike Anderson's lost as a St. John's coach in the non-conference at home. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, um, yeah. What was the overall Big East experience like? You know, you're playing on on the road at Villanova. You're playing mm-hmm. Providence, who had a great team. What was it like to be in some of those buildings and have some of that fan energy? Man, it was it was crazy. It was unbelievable. Um, I can't even. I don't even know which place was the the best place to play because most of them had you know packed crowds, um, and obviously you know just the energy in there is is ridiculous. And then you know the next thing is just. You know, the physicality and the athleticism of those guys are a lot different than the America East. So for me, it was a, a big adjustment. But, you know, I think, you know, I was able to play there, able to play Madison Square Garden a handful of times. So it was a great experience uh, being able to play in the Big East Conference. You know, when I think about you at UVM, there's two memories that distinctly stand out. One is your freshman year. You're going off against Marquette, I think, for mm-hmm. like 20. Yeah. And then I, I may have it backwards here, but I think it was before an America East playoff game. It was either your mom did your cornrows or you took the cornrows <laughs> out and your mom did your hair, but you went for like 30 and it might have been against Binghamton. So those are my two distinct memories of you at UVM. What are your memories at UVM? And am I right on that story, by the way? So the, the second one was we um, played Binghamton in the semis in the conference final my sophomore year. Yeah. And that, okay. was, that, was the, that was the first game that my mom braided my hair um, because I had it out before. And then. Okay. Um, yeah, I went for, I think it was like 28, eight threes or something like that. But yeah, that was a crazy, crazy experience. Um, but no, those two are definitely up there. And then I think, you know, just winning against UMBC, uh, my sophomore year after they, you know, beat us on a buzzer the, the year yeah. before, I think that was a, like a cra- crazy experience because I also remember they beat us twice in the regular season that year. And a lot of people were like, Oh, like UMBC is the, the new powerhouse of America East, stuff like that. So. Being able to to get that back, you know, avenge the the seniors like Trey and Cam and Peyton and all those guys, and then you know just doing it on our home court and kind of having that experience was was amazing. And you know, playing against Florida State too was a great experience too. I mean, you look at the roster now; they have four guys that have either played in the NBA or in the G League. So, you know, I think we we held our own. We only lost by I think it was six, and it was a, it was a really good game. It was a really good game. You know that your freshman year, UMBC beats at the buzzers, buzzer the Jairus Lyles three. They go on to mm-hmm. beat Virginia. Mm-hmm. All the administrators and coaches say they were happy UMBC won because it's good for the conference. I said, screw that. I didn't want to see UMBC win. How would you feel about it? What was happening? I felt the same way. I felt the same way. I mean, yeah, I wish I wish it was us there beating yeah. Virginia. You know what I mean? So, I mean, kudos to them for, for being the, the, the one 16th seed to do that. But, you know, it was – 
it was real bittersweet, you know, when when that happens because obviously they represented conference, but at the same time we didn't really want to see <laughs> them win because they just beat us. So you went to high school or to the same high school, I should say, as Trey Bell Haynes. Was mm-hmm. he instrumental in getting you to UVM? How was you? Because I know you guys were close. Yeah. What was your relationship mm-hmm. like prior to you getting to UVM? Yeah, no, he was basically just a big brother figure uh, to me coming in as a freshman, uh, ninth grader in high school, and he was kind of the, the top dog. And he kind of just taught me a lot of things about, you know, staying in the gym, um, you know, being able to be focused. Um, you know, there's a lot of distractions and stuff. So just being able to stay focused, keep grinding. And then um, after my first year, um, and he ended up going to Vermont, uh, I think they started recruiting me at the start of my senior year, actually. And, you know, Trey, um, when I talked to Coach Schneider, uh, Ryan Schneider, he was just saying that, you know, Trey has a lot of good things to say about you. We're going to be following. And then I think it was right before my season officially started, we actually had like a preseason tournament for the league that we played in. Um, Coach Becker came came out and, and offered me a scholarship in person. So that was a pretty cool experience. Who used to win the three-point contest after practice? You or Ernie Duncan? Uh, I'm gonna have to say Ernie. I'm gonna have to say Ernie. <laughs> Ernie was Ernie's probably one of the best shooters I ever played with. Um, and if you could only see how he shot the ball in practice, it would be like it would be insane. We used to do a drill, um, five minute shooting, and I remember I think he got like 78 or 79 in five minutes, and I think my high score was maybe like 72, 73, and Ev, Ev would be up there too, but. Um, he was always setting the bar for, for me to, to shoot better. And to he motiva- motivated me to, to get in the gym and get extra shots up. Well, I'll get you out of here on this. It's always the question I ask people when they've left town. When you mm-hmm. come back to Vermont the next time, whatever that is, mm-hmm. first place you're going to eat is where? First place? Uh, I'm either going to say Mimos or, okay. bueno, or Bueno Isano. Those are two of my favorite spots. All right, there you go. We'll we'll look forward to getting you back and getting you to try those things again. And uh, Seth Smith playing pro ball in Canada now. He's done some work on the Canadian national team before and uh, in the midst of his season right now. So, Steph, we appreciate your time today. Appreciate all you did in your four years at Vermont. And uh, good luck in the rest of your career. And we'll catch up again soon, I'm sure. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on the show, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Appreciate you as well. There goes Steph Smith again, four years in Catamount Country. A really Really good conversation, I thought. One that's a a while in the making. First time we've had Steph on in this version of the show. I've spoken to Steph before, but not since getting to WDEV. And he really was a standout performer for UVM for four years. I had no problem at all with him transferring. Absolutely zero. As far as I'm concerned, he owed Catamount Country nothing. He had given Catamount Country an awful lot. So if anybody was mad about him leaving for that fifth year, I wasn't buying it. I defended it at the time. I understood it at the time. Um, I thought he had pro aspirations and that's why he went to St. John. So he could help realize those pro aspirations. So again, I was all for it, but he does not get the recognition. I think that he deserves in Catamount country. I mean, he played in more than 100 games for UVM. He helped them get to the NCAA tournament. Could have been twice, if not for the COVID cancellation year. He was 39% from three in his time at UVM. He averaged double figures. He probably just doesn't get the recognition because he was always behind a player of the year. Trey Bell Haynes wins player of the year his freshman year. Anthony Lamb wins it his sophomore and junior year. And Ryan Davis wins it his senior year. 
So they get a lot of the credit. Steph Smith, Steph Smith deserves a lot of the credit also. He's just a very good player. And I think in a lot of ways, I think underrated for what he did in Catamount Country. You look, you come in here, you average double figures. You play on a team that got to the tournament. You shoot 39% from three. You can score 30 or whatever in that playoff game against Binghamton. That, that's a pretty special, pretty special career for a UVM player. Um, man, I, I am now Jonesing for UVM hoops next Friday. And I don't know if this is open to the public. I believe that it is, but next Friday, Friday through Sunday, UVM is going to be up in Canada. They're going to be in Montreal playing a weekend or kind of round Robin against three different Canadian teams, three different Canadian colleges. I believe Concordia is one. I believe McGill is the other. The third one eludes me, but I think it's going to be one on Friday, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. It's just a good chance for UVM to kind of get out there, get on the floor, get some of their new guys in game situations. I think some of our fans are going to be going up there. I have to really check on that, but I believe that is open. So um, maybe I'll check it with some of our media friends. Yeah, there you go. Jack, old intern Jack, who was on this show for a while last year, he's going to UVM. So maybe he can answer uh, if, the, if it's open to the public and who that third college is. But yeah, Concordia, McGill, and one other next Friday through Sunday in Montreal. I, I, I'm pumped to hear the reports of it. Maybe we'll bring Jack on the week after that to talk about how the team looked. There is a player. You know, UVM is going to be a different team, right? No Benny, no Ryan Davis. They're going to be a different team. There is a player getting a lot of attention for them by the name of Dylan Penn. Dylan Penn is a fifth-year player who comes in from Bellarmine. Bellarmine last year won the Atlantic Sun and Dylan Penn, I believe, led the league in scoring last year. If not, he was top three. I can't remember which one. But nonetheless, this guy is just a throwback player. There was a really fascinating article written about Dylan Penn um, on, a, on a site. came out yesterday. I think we're getting the author on next Monday. We're going to have the author on a Monday. Dylan Penn is like a 6'3 guard. It's just like a bulldozer. He doesn't shoot from the outside. He just gets to the rack. And he's incredibly efficient. It's going to be a different team this year. And I'm very interested in hearing how Dylan Penn and how all these guys go together. They got a, a young shooter, I think, by the name of Hurley, who's a freshman, who's supposed to be a pretty good shooter, a couple more transfers. So it's a different Catamount team. A really good Bryant program is now coming into the American East. It's not going to be a cakewalk for UVM. They're not just birthrighted to go 16-2 and two in American East play. But they got the potential, once again, to be pretty good. And, uh, you know, the Dylan Penn article, I read it. We're going to have the author on next week. They're going to Montreal next weekend. I talked to Tom Brennan earlier this week, and there was an interesting uh, conversation we had. I'll bring some of his points into the show next week, too, and we talk a little more UVM hoops. So, uh, good stuff. Uh, Texer says, Steph Smith is a smooth interviewer. Good job, Brady, making that a fun conversation. Well, I loved having Steph Smith on. Um, all right, what we'll do is we'll step aside. We'll come back. We'll get to who's saying what. Buster only told us something yesterday about High and Bloom that I cannot defend. And if it's true, it's more damning than any baseball move he's made or hasn't made. We'll tell you what that is. That's next on DEV. Your chance to be part of the show is on the text line at 802-585-3026. 
Whoa, whoa, whoa. What did he say? Mac Jones. Good Lord. Mel Kuyper's got to slow down on this. Mac Jones ain't going to work, folks. It's not going to work. He's got to come to terms with it. It's not going to work. They really said that? Every damn thing is politics and race. And I'm losing my mind over it. It's time for Who's Saying What on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEBAM FM and WDEBRadio.com. Who's Saying What is brought to you by Vermont Laser Wash. That's Central Vermont's home of unlimited car washes. If you want unlimited car washes, it's $20 a month. And what a what a deal that is, especially as we head towards fall and winter and all that muck and grime is there. Yeah, $20 a month, pretty good. If you want one free car wash, just text the word Vermont to the number 30 followed by 400. That's 30 followed by 400. Buster only of ESPN told us something yesterday. And if it's true, it's arguably the most damning thing I've ever heard about High and Bloom. I have defended High and Bloom. You know this. Only until this week have I come off the, the being the president of the High and Bloom fan club. I agree with a lot of his moves. I agree with his roster building methodology. What I cannot agree with is what Buster Olney told us yesterday. I'm only around the Red Sox a handful of days every year. You're seeing, you know, the beat writers really tapping into that that frustration. If I were close friends with Heim, who is a terrific guy, he's great to talk with. Um, that, that what I would say to Heim Bloom, if he were a friend, would be, you need to build these bridges because they are not in existence based on what the feedback that I'm getting is from players, from folks in your organization. Uh, the perception of Heim is that he's really isolated, that he he's not necessarily widely inclusive. And I'm not in the front office to know if that's true, but that's the perception of him. That's a simple, hard fact. The perception of High and Bloom is that he's very isolated and that he's not all that inclusive. If that is true, that is a huge problem for me. That is a huge problem for me. Let's back up for a second. Red Sox on Monday traded Christian Vasquez, right? The players were reportedly and understandably miffed about that. Xander Bogarts on Tuesday says that he's questioning the direction of the franchise. Now, Wednesday, Bloom, already scheduled, flies to Houston and then stays in Houston and then stays through yesterday in Kansas City in order to be accessible to players to answer questions about the organization's direction. So there he is, I guess, trying to work on those bridges and be accessible. But it's got to happen. It needed to have happened a whole lot earlier, apparently, than this week. I understand that being a Major League Baseball general manager, I understand that it is a business, right? Being in High and Bloom's position, it is a business. And the front office is always going to treat it like a business. But in 2022, you cannot operate as if it is only a business. There is a human element. There is a human impact, and it takes a human toll. It cannot just be business. And I'd be very interested on the text line, 802-585-3026, because I think this might be a generational thing. I believe that most millennials, of which most of these major league players are, most of the Red Sox players are millennials, like I am, between the ages of 24 and 34, most of them are in the same age bracket as me. I believe that most millennials want to be included. 
They want to have a relationship. And maybe you think that is soft and maybe you think that is weak. It doesn't really matter because that is how I think that it is. High and Bloom does not have to get wine with these guys every night. He doesn't have to take them out to dinner every night. He doesn't need to ask their permission to make moves. He doesn't need to bring them in on everything. That's not what this is about. But I believe that players want to see the front office. They want the front office out front, and they want to hear from them. And if High and Bloom is not doing that, that is a huge problem. It is a business. It is a bottom line business, but it is also a relationship business. You have to cultivate relationships. You have to nurture relationships. You have to value relationships. And if High and Bloom is not doing that, that is more damning to me than any move that he did or didn't make for a bullpen arm or a second baseman or a third baseman or a left fielder. You have to build relationships, and you have to cultivate them. And if you are not doing that in 2022 with your team or with your staff in any business, I believe you are doing it wrong. And I'm shocked that High and Bloom doesn't recognize this because he's only like 38. He's nearly a millennial also. He should recognize this. I can tell you for a fact, one of the things I like working at WDEV most about one of the things I most like working here is that Corm's the boss and Corm comes in and sees me for a few minutes, almost every day. He's not asking me for my advice on the direction of the station. He's not asking me for permission to do something with the station, but he comes in, he checks with me. He tells me, listen, he heard the show. Hey, I thought that was great. Hey, I thought that could be a little different. Hey, really good guess. Hey, that was pretty cool. He takes six minutes out of his day to get to know me and ask about Jess and ask about if I went golfing over the weekend and how I pitched. And that stuff matters. That stuff matters. I have an idea of what's going on here. He takes an interest in my life. He takes an interest in my work. And you want to go to bat for somebody like that. I have had bosses that sit up in the top office or sit up in some corporate office and they don't even know who you are. You don't want to go to bat for that person. And if High and Bloom is creating that kind of culture, then that is the problem. Like, get off of your perch, get out of your suite, go down to the field in batting practice, pick guys' brains, talk with them, ask about their families, get to know them. This seems to me to be basic 101 stuff, but evidently Buster only is telling us that for High and Bloom, it has not been commonplace. Build these bridges because they are not in existence based on what the feedback that I'm getting is from players, from folks in your organization. Uh, the perception of Haim is that he's really isolated, that he, he's not necessarily widely inclusive. That is a problem. That is a problem. You don't have to be and you shouldn't be best friends with the guys. Like, we can all see that. But in this day and age, you got to build the relationships. Okay? I, 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 am, I am just guessing here. But I feel like in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, you didn't want to even talk to your boss, right? 
Stay as far away from me as possible. Just pay me and we'll be good. That is how I think it used to be. That is not how it is in 2022 in professional sports. You don't have to give the players all the power, but you have to make it like you care about them and that you value them. And if you value them, they will value you in return. If you think it's soft, if you think it's weak, then so be it. That is how millennials are. That is how I am. I know that for a fact. And I am not the only one like that. I am not somebody who's like, just make sure the check clears and stay the hell away. Because for me, if that was the relationship, like, what am I battling for you for? If you, if you, don't, if you don't even know who I am, guess what? 36 hours or 45 hours, I don't really care. I'll do as minimum as possible just get to, just to get the check. But if I know you and I know you care about me and I know you value me, I will go the extra mile for you. That is what High and Bloom needs to do. And frankly, he needs to do it ASAP. This is not a learn-on-the-fly type job. Being the general manager of a baseball team, being the chief baseball officer, it is a you come in ready. It should not be learn on the fly. And if Hyam Bloom is three years into this thing and he's creating a culture where he's distant from everybody, that I promise you is going to get back to players and players aren't going to want that either. Players want to be where they are valued, where they are appreciated. And they've got to know that the front office has their back. Yes, it's a business. Yes, it's a cutthroat business. But that doesn't mean that you can't care about people and show that appreciation. They are not just numbers. They are not just salaries. They are not just chess pieces. This is not fantasy baseball. This is real life. And when Christian Vasquez gets pulled off the field the other day with a, glass, with a glassy-eyed look, that has a real impact. The organization and High and Bloom specifically have got to handle things better. I'm a fan of High and Bloom's roster building 98% of the time. I want to be a fan of his people skills. And with Buster telling us that, if that is true, then I just can't be. I just can't be. Tech says, thanks for replaying that quote from Buster. I missed that listening initially the other day. If High and Bloom is isolated, that's a bad sign. Totally agree. You've got to be able to. And I remember reading a story a couple of years ago. Remember Landon Collins, the really good safety for the New York Giants? He went to Washington after. Part of the reason he didn't like the Giants anymore, and part of the reason he disintegrated with them and with Dave Gettleman was because. Gentlemen, he said, didn't didn't talk to him. And I got it. Landon Collins said, look, man, I'm supposed to be the best player on this team, and you don't even speak to me. That that bothers me. It would bother me, too. I mean, think, Xander Bogarts doesn't know the direction of the franchise. Don't you think High and Bloom should be pulling him in and at least having a conversation? Again, don't ask for his permission. You don't have to give all your cards up either, but be transparent. Have a trust built. Because if, if Xander Bogarts 
had a trust built with Ian Bloom, he doesn't make that comment on Tuesday. He'd probably say, hey, Heim's good at what he does. Heim's always got a plan. And uh, I trust when the deadline's over, Heim's going to have done something to help this team. If, if the trust and if that bridge had been established, that's probably the answer from Xander Bogarts. But instead, there's no bridge. There's no trust. And Bogarts is on an island to say, you know what? Frankly, I, I don't know what the hell is going on. You cannot have that. You cannot have that. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Red Sox baseball is coming up at 710 with the pregame show. The first pitch is at 810. We'll get to the Red Sox lineups. And Major League Baseball added the third wild card into the playoff system this year. You are seeing the full effect of it in this playoff race. The good and the bad. We'll explain them both. That's next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Update now from the Vermont Mountaineers. The Martha's Vineyard Sharks put up four in the first inning there. So the Mountaineers are uh, got their works cut out for them. It's game one of the NECBL Championship Series. It's a best of three. And the Mountaineers down one, uh, down four, nothing here, headed towards the bottom of the first. Red Sox lineups will come your way momentarily. Sox and Royals in game two of this four-game set. You're seeing, in my opinion, the best, the, the full effect of the extra wild card team, right? Remember out of the labor issues back in March, major league baseball created a third wild card team. And you're absolutely in some ways seeing the benefit, right? There are seven teams in the American league that are in playoff contention right now, beyond the division leaders. There were probably 10 in that spot a month ago. Okay. Baseball was tired of seeing teams, have their seasons be over after two months. So they created a system where more teams have more meaningful baseball. You have your division leaders, right, which is right now the Astros, Twins, and Yankees. But beyond that, Blue Jays, Rays, Mariners, Guardians, White Sox, Orioles, Red Sox, they're all playing meaningful baseball here in early August. That is very, very good for baseball. But on the other side, you're seeing more. And I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. You're seeing more teams kind of straddle the middle and wobble at the trade deadline, aren't you? You're seeing teams saying, hey, we don't need to push the chips all into the center because we've got that extra opportunity. So you have teams that aren't going all in that are saying, hey, maybe we can just get in anyways without making that extra move. Or you're seeing teams that are like, hey, we're kind of in it, but we don't think we're really in it like Baltimore, so we're not even going to bother playing. We're just going to sell anyways. You see teams that are like a couple, two years ago, three years ago, you would see teams that were all in or all out, and the last two months of the season would be filled with a bunch of haves and have-nots, and that's not great for fan bases. So in, in some ways, 
having the extra wild card team has been really, really good for baseball. It's created more meaningful baseball, which is good for players, which is good for fans. But on the other hand, when you don't have teams that you know, like teams feel that like, hey, we're close, we don't have to go all in. We got the third the third team is a crutch for some teams. Or teams are like, hey, we don't have to go all out. That's not necessarily great for organization either. I was hard on the Red Sox at the deadline. Red Sox straddled the middle. Guardians straddled the middle. White Sox straddled the middle. Texas straddled the middle. All these teams straddled the middle because they're not quite sure what exactly they should have done. So the positive effect is, hey, more teams, more meaningful baseball. The negative effect is teams don't clearly know what they are. They're not all in for the playoffs. They're not doing the best thing for the organization in terms of rebuilding. They're just kind of there. And as a result, you get an unsatisfied fan base like we are with the Red Sox. And look, my dad's a White Sox fan. He texted me. He was bat bleep crazy that the White Sox didn't do anything. Well, the White Sox don't know if they should do anything. They don't want to leave the party too early. They don't want to stay at the party too long. So I, I was thinking about this the other day. I'm like, you know what? I'm so mad at the Red Sox. Maybe this is just the system that baseball created where you're in it. So it's not necessarily worth going all in for, but it's not worth going all out for. And more teams did it other than the Red Sox. Red Sox are 53 and 54. The Royals are 42 and 64. This is a rookie against a veteran. Josh Winkowski against Zach Granke. Winkowski four and five with an ERA of five. Granky three and six with a four four one ERA. Leading off of the Red Sox, Jaron Duran's in center. He's hitting two twenty nine. Tommy Pham is in left, hitting two thirty nine with eleven homers. Raphael Devers is hitting third at third, hitting three twenty two with twenty three home runs. Xander Bogarts is the shortstop, hitting three oh nine. Alex Verdugo is in right, hitting two sixty four. J.D. Martinez is down to the sixth spot, the designated hitter. Mired in the worst 35-game stretch of his career. Eric Hosmer is at first base, hitting 269, eight homers and 40 RBIs. Reese McGuire is the catcher. Yolmer Sanchez bats ninth, and he plays second. He's hitting just 059. For the Royals, M.J. Melendez is in left. Michael Massey is at second. Salvador Perez is the catcher. He bats third. Vinny Pascatino is the DH. He hits cleanup. Hunter Dozier is at third. He bats fifth. Nick Prado is at first. Nate Eaton is in right. Kyle Isbell is in center. Nicky Lopez is in shortstop. A lot of players you haven't heard of there. That, that six through nine spot is not a real valuable one in the Royals order. Red Sox have got to win this one. If it makes you feel better probably doesn't major league baseball just announced they screwed up yesterday's salvador perez home run it should not have been a home run as we all felt as alex cora felt again doesn't make me feel a whole lot better thanks to steph smith for stopping by have a great weekend everybody go download the podcast channel on apple Podcasts, spotify and at wdevradio.com go mountaineers go lake monsters have fun at thunder road on sunday we'll see you back here on monday